When Cornelius Vermeule researched how Raritan Landing was affected by the American Revolution, he pointed to an unsigned letter dated May 24, 1777, featured in an edition of the Pennsylvania Evening Post. The letter detailed the suffering one family endured at the landing. The writer stated that his wife had been sick all winter, frightened when the Hessians came on the 1st of December of 1776. He added that General Washington sent two cannonballs through his house. Decades later, field techs with the Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office discovered evidence that Raritan Landing was a war zone during the American Revolution. What had once been the understanding of a few historians was about to become far more common knowledge. During this episode, we'll talk about how the landing was affected during the war and what archaeologists excavated. From the Middlesex County Board of Commissioners, this is Uncovering Raritan Landing. Of course it's a barrel tap that both hands. People pay no attention. Even, you know, famous economic historians don't write enough about New Jersey. And what, mm. what, is, what were the trading networks in New Jersey? Because I think there are still presumptions that mm. nothing, New Jersey is not important in that period, in any period. The landing suffers pretty significant damages, and it seems like things get worse as the spring of 1777 goes on. And she had a trench opened up, and she had peeled up the sod. And this was like a, a two-foot-wide trench. And in the space of two feet across, there were a couple of dozen musket balls sitting there right, right under the grass. Yeah, it's like somebody dropped a whole bag of them. So I think the pillaging that occurs at the landing where British troops are are quartered in many of the buildings. Some buildings are lost to fire, and, and household possessions are taken by the soldiers. And it's like, you know, what are the chances of you dug in that exact same spot? Somebody 200 years earlier dropped a bag of musket balls, and it was like, you know, wow, you know, a couple hundred yards up the road, we had to dig down three feet and couldn't, never found anything like this. And here it's like we peel up a sod and there it is. I mean, I just, I just, you know, found that uh, fantastic. Why was the unmarked grave of a soldier found? What does that mean? Does that mean New Jersey played a key role in the American Revolution? To obtain that answer, we interviewed Dr. Richard Veit again. Well, New Jersey plays a central role in, in the American Revolution. It's been famously called the cockpit uh, of the revolution because there is so much of the conflict occurs here, and we have significant uh, military engagements at you know the battles at Trenton and Princeton, the Battle of Monmouth, Springfield, Connecticut Farm, Short Hills, Red Bank, uh, as well as dozens and dozens of skirmishes. We heard from Dr. Veit during episode two that focused on the Lenape. In addition to being an expert in the indigenous people of New Jersey and the surrounding area, he also has a ton of experience in the excavation of several prominent Revolutionary War archaeological sites in New Jersey. Our location is both uh, is and was both a great asset uh, between two of the burgeoning cities of the uh, of the 13 colonies, New York and Philadelphia, but it also put New Jersey sort of squarely in the sights of the leaders, both in terms of the Crown Forces and in terms of the Continentals. So it becomes a deeply, deeply contested area. According to one historian, at least one estimate states there were more than 600 battles fought in New Jersey. I would tend to agree uh, with the statement that New Jersey was the primary battleground for the revolution. Certainly other states ha- would, would probably, uh, their, their tourism boards, I suspect, would be willing to contest that claim. But I, I think that New Jersey has a, has a good case for being the primary battleground. The number of damage claims filed in the state is exceedingly high. There are you know, very good descriptions of the amount of destruction wrought in New Jersey by uh, the by both armies, um, and how the state's economy is really quite badly damaged by the end of the war due to all the fighting here, and uh, and again being sort of right on America's main road between these two important cities, New York held by the British essentially for the entire revolution, and, and Philadelphia the capital of the young United States, then captured by the British, then abandoned by the British. I mean, we were just in such 
such a strategic location that I think we we bore uh, you know a disproportionate um, percentage of the cost of the war. And Raritan Landing's proximity to the river made it strategically important to both the Continental and the British forces. The other factor that makes it important is not only do you have the Raritan, which is you know like a, a watery highway of early America. But you also have land routes that cross the Raritan in the vicinity of, of Raritan Landing. So even from the 17th century, there, there are ferries in the area around Highland Park, uh, Indians Ferry, and, uh, and there are fords across the river in the area of, of Raritan Landing. So people going, cutting across the state uh, over land, pass through the area, and vessels coming up and down the Raritan have to stop there because they really, at least ocean-going vessels can't go any further upriver because the river becomes too shallow and rocky. What about the inhabitants of colonial New Jersey? Did they support the cause for independence? Was a larger number of its inhabitants loyal to the crown? Again, Dr. Richard Veit. New Jerseyans were divided in terms of their support of the war. Uh, I would say that uh, probably a third of New Jerseyans were staunch patriots, and uh, roughly a third uh, were as committed to the Loyalist cause or the Tory cause. And I'd, I'd put the third group in a, in a category of what we might call undecided or, or even, you know, hoping to, hoping to avoid really having to commit to, to either side. They were not as uh, engaged in just trying to preserve their own lives and, and livelihoods. Regardless of what side you were on, patriot, loyalist, or undecided, especially in New Jersey, chances are representatives of the patriots or loyalists attempted to persuade you to either sign an oath of loyalty to King George III or show some kind of proof you were an enthusiastic patriot, committed to independence. One of the very staunch loyalists was Bernardus Lagrange. He was an attorney and lived at Raritan Landing. To learn more about LaGrange, we turn to another familiar voice, Dr. Maxine Laurie, Professor Emeritus of Seton Hall University, and someone we spoke with in Episode 3. Bernardus LaGrange is really interesting. I could find out some things about him and some things I'd more like to know, but anyway, he comes from, was originally a Huguenot family um, that settles in the Albany area in New York, and he um, moves down into uh you know, into New Jersey, into the Raritan Valley. There actually are a number of Huguenots uh, that are settled in New Brunswick and, and at Raritan Landing. They have, uh, sometimes they marry into Dutch families as well, but this is the, the origins. So it's several generations later uh, when he comes. He's a lawyer, uh, so a practicing lawyer, also owns uh, land um, and apparently does some, uh, some farming um, as well. He's an Anglican, uh, no longer a Huguenot, but he's an Anglican and a member of Christ Church uh, in New Brunswick. And he is opposed to the revolution from, you know, at least 1774 or so. LaGrange practiced law from 1745 to the start of the revolution. His cases were about debt collection. That kind of law made him very unpopular. Allegedly, his clients resented him and accused him of overcharging for his services. Years before the revolution began, LaGrange did not mask his feelings about certain famous events, like the Boston Tea Party. When LaGrange learned that his fellow subjects in Raritan Landing were speaking against the British government, he referred to them as misguided and infatuated. Um, I've been looking over his papers again, and he makes a statement early on that the people like who are uh, uh, burnt the tea... Uh, that these are all crazy um, Presbyterians that want independence. When people learned that LaGrange was a loyalist, they sent him a message. They do hang him in effigy, uh, so they create, um, and I'm, I always assume, but I'm not positive, it's like you took a sheet and you stuffed it with straw, made it look like a person, and then, um, so they stuffed it and put it in a cart and dragged it uh, around the town. Um, and this is a threat because it was saying, this is what we'd like to do with you if we could get your hands on you. In addition to being hanged and dragged in effigy, two threatening letters are sent, 
one to him, one to his wife. The goal was for LaGrange's wife to persuade him to support the cause for independence. This reading lasts two minutes and 46 seconds. To Mrs. LaGrange, July 28, 1776. Madam, it is with pleasure I look around and behold so many of my countrymen fired with a martial spirit, who cheerfully leave their wives and children at home and undergo the hardships of a campaign and hazard their all in the field of battle. Behold how firm and united we stand, taking each other by the hand, are determined to support our just rights and privileges, or fall together. I say this sight affords me real satisfaction, as I think it must every true friend of liberty. But amidst of the many thousands who pour forth from every quarter, I behold one, nay, one of my neighbors, for whom I formerly had respect, safely hanging back, who as yet has given no assistance to the general defense." but has, by the whole of his conduct, proved himself an enemy of the independent states of America, and has for some time past, conscious of his own wickedness, concealed himself from public view. He is supposed by many to be in his own house in town. A search will shortly be made. I therefore, as a true friend, entreat you to advise Mr. LaGrange to appear in public. No man will molest him. If he could not before so cheerfully obey the Congress because he thought he owed allegiance to the king of Great Britain. That objection is now removed by the Declaration of Independency. Beg of him to join with his countrymen in supporting the cause of freedom. He surely cannot spend the remainder of his life in the secret manner he does at present. I shall be very sorry to see Mr. LaGrange's estate seized and made use of for the public, which will shortly be the case, unless he proves more friendly to his country. I would not have you imagine that this is all conjecture, or that this letter comes from a person unacquainted with the proceedings of the convention of this state. Therefore, if Mr. LaGrange is desirous of living happy and enjoying peace in America, let him come out as a friend to his country. Otherwise, I would advise him to repair to Staten Island, where I wish he was. Remember, it is high treason to revile against the states of America, or the ruling body of them. Mr. LaGrange used to say the church to which he belongs was in danger of being destroyed. Let him read the new constitution of this province, and ever after keep silent upon that head. The Presbyterians are not such devils as you formerly imagined. Neglect not giving good advice to your husband. I remain yours, K.L., a mechanic. May you remember me of my old name." K.L. the Mechanic, that signed the letter, was presumably a member of the Mechanics, a group similar to the Sons of Liberty. By the time this letter was written, British naval vessels and British army transports had reached Staten Island. The enormous fleet of 70 ships, according to one historian, was roughly half of the British fleet. 34,000 British troops were either stationed at Staten Island or on transports ready to land on Long Island. Preparing to face them was General George Washington's Continental Army, but clearly not as experienced as their opponents. According to another New Jersey historian, Richard McCormick, Washington's army that moved south from Boston to defend New York City had no more than two-thirds that amount. In late summer of 1776, LaGrange left his home in Middlesex County. And he's scared enough uh, that when the British land uh, in the summer of 1770, uh, 1776, and they, they land um, Staten Island, Long Island. He, uh, goes over, uh, he goes over to the British. While LaGrange was enjoying the safety of the British Army between late August and late November, British forces pushed Washington's army from Brooklyn to Newark and then New Brunswick. This maneuver is known as the Long Retreat. In early December, Washington crossed the Delaware into Pennsylvania. Crown forces and Hessian soldiers encamped from Hackensack, to Trenton. According to historian Richard McCormick, the headquarters was New Brunswick, which was just across the river from Raritan Landing. The man in charge of pursuing Washington's Continental Army, Lord General Cornwallis, encamped at New Brunswick. After the Battle of Trenton, the Continental Army encamped in Morristown for the winter of 1776 and early 1777. And during this time, the newly formed state government of New Jersey confiscated property of loyalists. LaGrange lost everything. Because he was seen as a loyalist, his property is um, confiscated. 
and he owned, he owned farmland. He owned, um, I described it as like a stone house. I think from the description in Somerset, it's actually purchased uh, by William Patterson and his wife, uh, and they, uh, they move into it. This is the same William Patterson that William Patterson University in Wayne is named after. His property is confiscated by the state, um, and the state did this. And for those who were shocked uh, that the Patriots would go around confiscating property, the British, when they were in control in places, did exactly the same thing. The British controlled New York City for most of the war, and they went around putting the letter R for rebel on houses and confiscating um, the, the Patriots' property. When the British Army encamped at Raritan Landing and New Brunswick, Bernardus LaGrange returned with them. He comes back uh, when the British uh, pursue New Jersey um, and come, come back. Uh, they settle a large number of soldiers in New Brunswick, and he's one of the ones uh, going around and basically I'm insisting that people take an oath of loyalty uh, to the king. In the fall of 1776, it's estimated about 3,000 people in New Jersey do that. They think the war is lost. Uh, They think maybe the war is uh, about to be over. Um, And he's the one then that's going around and and having people sign uh, this oath of loyalty uh, to the king. Another thing returns after the British are encamped in Raritan Landing and New Brunswick, Anglican church services. The Reverend Abraham Beach, right after the Declaration of Independence is read in New Brunswick, he goes to hold services in the um, Anglican church. And the Anglican services started with a prayer for the health of the king and the royal family and parliament. So he goes to, uh, to start the services, and somebody in the congregation supposedly stands up and says, stop, because that's now treason. And he stops, um, and he stops holding services until the British come into New Brunswick in the summer of 1776, and then he goes back to holding services because he can safely say the prayers to the king, obviously, um, because there's about 10,000 British soldiers and Hessian soldiers in New Brunswick and in Piscataway. We also asked Dr. Veit if he could provide us with the number of Hessian and British soldiers that were encamped just at the landing and New Brunswick. The numbers are they're hard to figure out in terms of the exact numbers. I would say, to my best guess, is two to 3,000 uh, troops camped in and around, in and around Raritan Landing. So we have many different regiments that are present in, in and around Raritan Landing, the 35th, the 5th, the 49th, the 64th, all these British regiments. Whether they're at full strength or not uh, during this period, it, it's hard to say. And, there, they, and then added to that, we have uh, a number of, of Hessian units as well. It's certainly hundreds. I would say it's probably closer to to 2,000 troops with headquarters in in New Brunswick, but but troops really in a circle all the way around New Brunswick and Raritan Landing. We asked Dr. Veit to provide us with a description of the British encampment at Raritan Landing. They have these patterns of organization, uh, sometimes called castramentation, where everything is laid out in kind of you know rigid rigid lines. So I think that would have been the case, and uh, the troops actually camp in the field much as they would fight, uh, so that that the soldiers kind of are always familiar with kind of who is surrounding them, where they are in this organizational structure. So imagine lines of tents with soldiers in those tents, junior officers' tents behind them, uh, ranking officers behind them still, uh, then camp kitchens sutlers who are going to be selling wares to the soldiers. You'd probably have camp followers associated with all of these camps. Both the uh, the Crown Forces and the Continental Forces are, are always accompanied by by some, some women and children uh, as well. Certainly the impression the British would have wanted to give was of a well-organized army. Whether they're able to maintain that through the whole winter and into the spring is not clear. Some of the primary sources that I've looked at talk about you know, being camped on what they, they describe as a very bleak hill. And, and other troops are quartered in, in houses, in barns, especially as the winter wears on. It's not healthy for the men to be in tents through, through the winter. And I think those houses really, you know, they really suffer from the, the troops who are stationed there. They, uh, 
there's a lot of wear and tear uh, with those fellows, and um, and in many cases the houses have been abandoned, right? So if if a patriot owned a house, he might well have uh, headed out to Somerset or Hunterdon counties to get away from the seat of the conflict, abandoning his family or her family's home. The troops that are then using those houses often do a lot of damage to them, and I would expect they were quite a mess. There was a publication that guided an army encampment. This primary document shows the organization that would have occurred at Raritan Landing or any other army encampment during the war. Yeah, they, they, have, they have guides that the officers would have all been familiar with and probably would have kind of internalized mentally. One of my favorite is by uh, an officer named Bennett Cuthbertson. And, and if you're familiar with, and you know, I don't want to make light of this, but if you're familiar with the, the books like uh, How to Use Microsoft Office for Dummies, sort of those, those books, the, these officers' guides like Cuthbertson's are, are quite similar. They really say, you know, here's how far apart uh, your tents need to be. Here's how you lay out a camp. Here's, here's how soldiers, while marching, make a left turn. Uh, and it goes through all, all the details. Cornelius Vermeule counted 57 families at the landing in 1776. Vermeule believed most were for the cause of independence. So their their individual residents of Raritan Landing, who were who were uh, patriots for sure, John Bray is one who comes to mind. The British Army occupies, or the Crown forces more properly, because it would have also included the Hessians, and occupies Raritan Landing from the sort of December of 1776 to June of 1777. One of the worst realities of the American Revolution, and certainly one of the worst for New Jersey, was the pillaging by the British and Hessian forces while they were encamped at or near the landing. So I think the pillaging that occurs at the landing where British troops are are quartered in many of the buildings, some buildings are lost to fire, and, and household possessions are taken by the soldiers. Someone who witnessed the pillaging of Piscataway and perhaps Raritan Landing was William Dunlop. Born in 1766, he was sent to Piscataway in the summer of 1776 for his safety. In Dunlop's words, he rambled about the fields, caught perch in the brooks or sunfish in the mill ponds, and read Shakespeare. He enjoyed the history plays the most. In his reminiscences, he didn't offer a specific date for the scenes he witnessed, but he did say the English army marched in hostile array through New Jersey. Dunlop continued that, I saw soldiers plundering houses, the women of the village trembling and weeping, or flying with their children. A scene of promiscuous pillage was in full operation. Here a soldier was seen issuing from a house, armed with a frying pan and gridiron. The women who had followed the army assisted their husbands in bringing the furniture from the houses or stood as sentinels to guard the pile of kitchen utensils or other articles, already secured and claimed by right of war. Here was seen a woman bearing a looking glass. That was a mirror. And here a soldier with a feather bed. But as this was rather an inconvenient article to carry on a march, the ticking was soon ripped open, and a shower of goose feathers were seen taking higher flights than their original owners ever soared to. On one level, I would say that what happens at the landing is reflective of what happens in other communities when when armies arrive, that the civilian population experienced a lot of abuse. Buildings were were destroyed. That property was was lost. But there are, you know, there are instances in the Raritan Valley. There are instances that might be characterized today uh, that that are so horrific that today they would be probably be characterized as as atrocities uh, or war crimes. According to Dr. Maxine Laurie. Middlesex County had more damage claims than any other county. Now, to be fair, Monmouth County also experienced horrific damage by the British Army. The damage claims for Monmouth County, if they exist, have not been located. There are over 2,000 claims for colonial New Jersey for the years 1776 to 1783. Here are three examples of Middlesex County residents that reported damage caused by the British forces. Jane Blair of Raritan Landing was a tavern owner. Her husband had died years earlier. In the house, she claimed she lost five chairs, a mirror, and pewter plates. 
She also claimed she lost an iron pot, half-dozen knives and forks, a large frying pan, a brass kettle, and a gridiron. She lost some clothing, too. Pillowcases, stockings, mittens, a petticoat, a jacket and breeches, which were pants that ended below the knee. The barn was destroyed. It measured 25 by 35 feet, and the garden fence was taken down, most likely for firewood. The British forces took a horse and a cow, and she reported she lost a slave, valued at 100 pounds. The slave's name was not listed. Charles Sedam of Raritan Landing swore that he knew the horse taken and another witness, Ishmael Shippey, swore he knew Blair's barn was destroyed by the enemy. This reporting referred to as damage claims were ordered by Congress, so citizens could be properly compensated for what they lost. Miss Blair swore to all of this in 1782. There is no record that neither Jane Blair nor any other person or family in all of New Jersey was properly compensated. Charles Saddam also lost a lot. I'll start with the small things and work my way up. He lost $650 in cash, a silver pocket watch, silver teaspoons, silver tablespoons, pewter dishes, a dozen knives, half dozen forks, china bowls, and china teaware. In food, he lost 60 tablespoons of butter and two gallons of honey. Clothing, like Jane Blair, he also lost pillowcases, a gown, a hat, an apron, woolen stockings, one dozen wool breeches, which were new, and a walking cane. From the house, the British took a table, six chairs, three bed frames, a sword, and a gun. From the barn, the British took a plowing tool called a harrow. They also took 500 potatoes, 20 tons of hay, 50 bushels of turnips, and 200 bushels of corn. Now, bushel is not something we use in everyday life, so a peck is a dry measurement of eight quarts, and four pecks is equal to one bushel. The British Army also took from Charles Saddam six beehives, 450 bushels of wheat, and he also lost five wagon loads of oats. The British Army took seven cattle, six calves, which were no more than a year old. Seven additional calves were lost, along with eight sheep, which were six months old. Then two horses and one colt. Charles Saddam's home was heavily damaged, as well as the cider mill, a press, the barn, and a wagon house. A wagon house can be the size of a barn. Two carpenters inspected the damage. Saddam swore to all of this on October 5th, 1782. Saddam also owned slaves, and he claimed two women were taken, one 40, another 25 years of age. Saddam also claimed he lost three children that were enslaved. One was 10 years old, one was six years old, and another six-year-old. No names were given. Was there ever a time British officers ordered soldiers to refrain from damaging personal property? Dr. Richard Veit. One of the things I noticed in, in reading uh, orderly books, which are essentially the day's orders, it's a book of orders for that day that uh, you know regiments and other units keep. They're really useful for historians because they're, they're sort of a day-by-day diary uh, of, uh, of a military unit. They seem to indicate that early on, the British uh, are making a really concerted effort to um, to respect private property and individuals. So, for instance, I, I remember one one case where a gentleman, a British soldier, I think, steals liquor from an individual, and and the soldier is is whipped in punishment uh, pretty harshly. But as the conflict drags on, particularly after the battles at Trenton and Princeton, it seems like attitudes shift. Another officer's diary, it might have been John Peebles, I'm not sure, says, you know, went out foraging, burned three houses back by noon. And I just thought it was such a callous statement, which also showed, you know, how attitudes of the British troops and officers towards the Americans had changed, and presumably those attitudes on the other side had had changed, as well as the conflict uh, drags on. The British Army were encamped at Raritan Landing and New Brunswick from December 1776 to June of 1777. During that time, there were a number of smaller engagements called skirmishes. The first was on January 23, 1777. 
American militia attacked a British foraging party at Charles Saddam's and Hendrick Smock's place on the road up the Raritan, present-day River Road. Another took place on February 22, 1777. Fifteen British soldiers were captured beyond Raritan Landing during an attempt to capture the British guard at the Landing Bridge, where the Crown had thrown up defensive earthworks. The third action occurred near Raritan Landing. The Battle of Boundbrook was a surprise attack conducted by British and Hessian forces against the Continental Army outpost at Boundbrook on April 13, 1777. The British failed to capture the entire garrison, but they took prisoners. The British troops, 4,000 strong, left late on the evening of the 12th from New Brunswick under the command of General Cornwallis. There was heavy fire exchanged in the vicinity of the Lough House upon the British Army's return to New Brunswick. So as the British pulled their troops out of New Brunswick and Raritan Landing, there's quite active fighting on the bluffs kind of behind the Lau House and today stretching into what is uh, the Rutgers kind of nature preserve. That's what I would call, it's, it's a skirmish, I would call it a heated engagement. And there, there is archaeological evidence for that, uh, as well as for the British camps just outside of the community's kind of core. And that evidence comes in the form of uh, musket balls, both dropped and impacted. An impacted ball would have hit something or someone buttons, gun parts, sort of all the accoutrements that would have been part of the kit uh, of the soldiers during the Revolutionary War. So yeah, there's, there's pretty good evidence for that. Approximately one year after British forces left their encampments at Raritan Landing and New Brunswick, the Continental Army celebrated independence. According to General Washington's orders dated July 3, 1778, soldiers were to make the best appearance possible and to adorn their hats with green boughs. This event was called a feu de joie, a fire of joy. To add to the celebration, General Washington ordered a double allowance of rum to be served to all troops. When the British Army was encamped at Raritan Landing and New Brunswick, Loyalist Bernardus Lagrange returned with them. Later in 1777, he fled again, this time to New York City, but we don't know specifically where. In 1783, he fled to London. He never returned to Raritan Landing or New Brunswick. LaGrange left two brothers, a sister, and a cousin in America. He reported that he suffered greatly as a result of his allegiance to King George III. He filed a claim with the Royal Claims Commission. When he goes to England, he files a claim. Uh, the British create, and it's created just as he's getting there in 1783, they create the Royal Claims Commission, which operates in, um, in London, and they also send commissioners to Canada because a lot of loyalists go uh, to Canada. And uh, you could go in and um, present uh, your claims to this uh, Royal Claims Commission, and they would look at it uh, very carefully. Um, and they were discussed, evaluated, um, and you needed, I think you needed five copies. You needed witnesses. So LaGrange is writing back to his minister, um, the Reverend Beach, uh, like, send me a list of what was confiscated. He had to prove what it was worth uh, so he could file his claims with the British. In his letters to Abraham Beach, LaGrange made it clear he was worried about the appraisal of his property. He feared the property would be undervalued and bought with worthless continental money, as he put it. He valued his law practice at 400 pounds a year, and stated he owned at least two stone-faced houses, plus land in several places. He wrote that he had two children with him and more than ten grandchildren, with no means of support. It is possible LaGrange lied on his damage claims application. In total, LaGrange valued his property at 8,387 pounds and 12 shillings, but received only 2,638 pounds for the property confiscated. He was also given 240 pounds a year for lost income and a pension of 120 pounds per year. Dr. Lorry stated LaGrange fared better than African Americans that joined the Loyalist cause and later filed claims. Claims by African Americans who become exiles. Uh, the British were often inclined to um, deny those claims, so they didn't believe them. In Richard McCormick's book, Experiment in Independence, Middlesex County filed the largest number of damage claims presented after the war. Dr. Maxine Laurie expanded on the damage done. Um, and in the end, uh, for 
for those who estimate the number of people, the number killed uh, in the revolution, more people are killed per percentage of the population in the American Revolution than in any other war, and more of the deaths are in New Jersey than elsewhere because so much of the war was actually fought um, was in New Jersey. And I don't think a lot of people are really aware of that. The other consequence is that there's just an enormous amount of damage. Estimates are that it took like 25 years to recover after the revolution from the damage that had been done. It's crops, houses, churches, courthouses, uh, people's homes that are destroyed. It's the animals and the wagons that are eaten up by uh, by the armies. Um, and sometimes it's, again, it's both armies. So, yeah, so New Jersey's both important, but it also suffers um, a great deal of damage. And Middlesex County in particular, and New Brunswick and Reardon Landing, the descriptions are just of a great deal of damage. There's one estimate at some point, and it's actually towards the beginning of the war, that when the British pulled out of New Brunswick, two-thirds of the, ho- of the homes, two- two-thirds of the town had been destroyed. So just, uh, you know, we just don't remember that if you lived in New Jersey, you were living in a war zone for a long time. Raritan Landing never recovered to its pre-Revolutionary War prosperity. First of all, you have the damage that has been caused by the conflict itself, both both the occupation and fighting fighting in the region. Uh, I mean, skirmishing happens probably right on the property by the Cornelius Lau House, so uh, it's kind of endemic. There was a tremendous dislocation of of people too during during the war, where folks become loyalists, become refugees, and move to New York City or move into camps on on Sandy Hook. Patriots also abandon their properties and come back to find them badly damaged. And then the evolving transportation network. So kind of early 19th century, New Jersey sees its transportation network really growing with uh, first kind of turnpike roads, improved roads across the state that form to some extent the basis of our modern road network today, like Route 1 and Route 27, the creation of the canals, particularly the Delaware and Raritan Canal, uh, you know, which has a, one of its termini or terminus in New Brunswick, and then the railroad, which also bypasses the town. So trade and transportation networks are, are changing, and, and the old social structures, too, that had characterized Raritan Landing with these wealthy merchant families. Again, the Lao is probably the most prominent but the Van Horns, who, whose house was further up the river near uh, Somerset Patriots Ballpark, but were also trading in, in Raritan Landing, they've lost some of their. Uh, I was going to say wealth, but it's not only wealth. It's but the the society structure is changing as well. So their Raritan Landing is, you know, perhaps we could say, you know, a victim of like a, a perfect storm of social and economic changes, as well as a place that had already been so abused by by the occupation during the revolution. After participating in 25 excavations of Raritan Landing, David Zamoda's favorite artifact, and the one that still mystifies him, is something called bar shot. One thing that always stands out, and unfortunately it, it was found in, in the uh, spoils uh, pile from the heavy equipment stripping of the site to get down to the the historic layers was a piece of uh, bar shot, uh, which is a piece a piece of uh, artillery ammunition. Most people think of cannonballs. Bar shot is if you can picture a cannonball cut in half with a six inch rod welded to the to the two sides and that's generally used as a defense against ships to uh, take out sails and rigging now what they needed that at Raritan Landing is hard to say there was some thought of some hostile parties sailing up the river to do something or other I mean I, I can't think of any example that it actually happened 
that uh, does show that you know there was some kind of concern that that uh, was possible. During the dig, uniforms were also uncovered. There was also um, the remains of two uh, Revolutionary War uniforms, uh, jackets in particular. One enlisted uh, uh, personnel. I, th- I think it was the uh, the Coldstream Guard or the uh, the Eighth the Eighth Guard, and the other was a uh, officer's uh, jacket. And you know, since we excavate very carefully, we can see the the line of the uh, buttons, you know, evenly spaced in the ground. So it looks like you know, instead of a handful of buttons that were which was all that was left, the way they were spaced and oriented, you could see that the whole jacket had been thrown in there, and the difference between the officers and the enlisted uh, jackets the the buttons for the enlisted men were uh, pewter cast pewter and the officers had a two piece button which had a bone back and the the front of the button was uh, gold plated uh, copper brass David Zamoda informed us of a dig that took place between the Lau house and the Mettler Bodine house the second of two structures that remains from Raritan Landing. This dig happened in the early 90s. Through the analysis, it was assumed to be part of the British occupation. And it was interesting because there was a lot of tea wares. <laughs> you were in a wartime, they were drinking their tea. But one of the, the most interesting things out of there, we found lead type, you know, for, for printing, printing type couple of different letters, not a lot. I think there may be four pieces, a couple different letters. And you wonder why, what were they doing with lead type? You know, obviously they they weren't printing letters home or something like that. One of my theories on it was that their supplies were running short and they were taking this lead type and, and melting it down for musket balls. Now, there's really no way to prove it other than the fact that type is not pure lead. It's, it's, it's sort of an alloy to make it harder because pure lead, like you'd find in a musket ball, you wouldn't be able to print too much with it. You know, it would just, it would just flatten out eventually. But uh, if, if you could do analysis on the, on the type to get a... Uh, percentage of what the alloy was and then then, uh, test some of the musket balls from the area if it contained that uh, that alloy. I'm not sure what the alloy is to to make lead harder. Another theory is that the type was used to print oaths of loyalty to King George III, the same loyalty oaths that were passed out by Bernardus Lagrange when he returned with the British Army from December 1776 to June of 1777. Dr. Veit participated in an excavation in the early 21st century. We asked him what kinds of technology was used to compare with the dig of 1980. It was a mix of what I would call kind of high-tech and low-tech. In sites like the British encampments, we started out with ground-penetrating radar to look below ground before we ever excavate to sort of see where there are features or anomalies that might relate to past cultural behaviors or past historic activities. For the camps, we followed that up with uh, metal detecting because so many of the artifacts that the troops would have lost would have been been metal. They didn't have, uh, you know, large quantities of ceramics or glass items with them. And the metal detecting proved quite fruitful. The radar was sort of a mixed bag. But then we followed that up with extensive hand excavation, so carefully troweling away soil, in patterned excavation units to try and unearth both artifacts, but also uncover, more, almost more importantly than the artifacts, features, the remains of structures, and, and see the relationship. So we can see the relationship between artifacts, features, the historic buildings. There was a GIS component as well, so geographic information systems, where we took historic maps and we overlaid them on modern maps to try and see where we should be able to locate different sites. 
And that is interesting and fun and also really challenging because you can imagine a map that a group of soldiers made in December of 1776 in the cold with with a compass and a quill pen and um, a surveyor's chain is hard to line up with a modern a modern map, but sometimes you can, and that's that's really exciting when they align. And then more recently. You know, in terms of the interpretation, the archaeology has informed things like museum exhibits and and a colleague, uh, Ed Gonzalez Tennant, uh, using sort of gaming software, uh, developed 3D virtual Raritan landing or portions of the community. So it's a it's archaeology is interesting because it uh, sort of lives at the intersection of science and the humanities, and and also at the intersection of kind of cutting edge technologies. With, with very, very traditional methods, excavating with shovel, trowel, and, and screen. Those combined approaches can give us a really a very rich view of past communities like Raritan Landing. We also wanted him to tell us what he discovered during the 21st century dig. Raritan Landing yielded some of the richest uh, archaeological collections from really from the, from the state and, and from the entire entire region. Uh, the Revolutionary War finds are especially interesting. In the British camps, we had gun parts, musket balls, military buttons, cartridge box insignia, all of which were found in a very patterned way on the landscape and, and speak to how the, how the army camped outside of town. On the other hand, in the town proper, there were some really fantastic finds. In one case, I remember archaeologists found it was uh, more than a dozen buttons uh, in almost the same location, presumably from a, a British officer's coat that had been had been lost with all its buttons, and all that survived today were the buttons. There was a, a wonderful end, what, sort of the butt end of a very fancy pistol that had this kind of grotesque face cast in brass. There was a collection of tools related to gun maintenance and repair, perhaps an armorer's workshop. Uh, and these were found in and around the houses at, at the landing and speak to the lives of the soldiers who were staying in those houses in the winter winter into the spring of 1777. One of the most important facts regarding archaeological sites is access to the exact locations is usually limited. Dr. Veit explains why. Access to it is, is limited because we want to make sure that these resources survive for, for future generations. Archaeology has been described as the ultimate destructive science with uh, an analogy to an archaeological excavation being kind of reading a book and then burning each page of the book as, as one reads the book and only having the notes you took on that page to kind of learn from in the, in the, in the future. Once an archaeological site is, is excavated, it no longer exists. Uh, all we have are the, the artifacts we've recovered, in the records we've made during the excavation, maps, drawings, photographs, that sort of thing. So there's a fear with archaeological resources that um, if they are excavated or collected without careful records being kept, careful notes being taken, that, that we'll, we will lose information, so have less information in the future. Dr. Veit reminded us archaeology doesn't just occur in the dirt, but is an extremely long, arduous process. The project that I was involved in lasted almost a year in the field. But one of the things that's often not recognized about, about archaeology is that uh, field work is important, but often the time in the field is kind of, you have to multiply it exponentially by the amount of time we then spend washing, processing, cataloging, conserving artifacts, and um, writing lengthy technical and also public reports. So we, had a, we wrote a whole series of technical reports, and then Rebecca Yeaman, a very gifted writer, put together a popular book 
uh, on Raritan Landing. So a year in the field can translate to three or four years of, of research and, and writing. Even if a site is destroyed by data collection, the remaining archaeological sites, whether they are public or private, are to be treasured as resources of learning. Archaeological resources on, on public lands, such as county properties in and around Raritan Landing, they are, you know, in a sense, they belong to all of us as part of a, a shared heritage and, and part of something that's communally owned as county, county property. But the hope is to protect those so that future generations of Middlesex County residents and New Jerseyans can, can learn as much from them. Increasingly, archaeologists, though, are trying to work with uh, the general public to bring people in as partners in their archaeological excavation so that they can both have the experience, kind of the, the thrill of discovery, of finding things, and a better understanding of, of the scientific and, and humanistic techniques that, that archaeologists use. Middlesex County partnered with the Archaeological Society of New Jersey to excavate the grounds of the Cornelius Lau House, also known as the Middlesex County Museum. The Lau House is one of the two remaining structures from the landing. The other is the Mettler-Bodine House, a short distance down River Road. But before any digging was to take place, the county hired Tim Horsley, an archaeologist who was assigned to use ground-penetrating radar and magnetometry to search the grounds for the best places to dig. I spoke with him in April of 2021. That conversation and the excavation of the Lau House will be covered in the fifth and final episode of Uncovering Raritan Landing. Thanks for listening. Uncovering Raritan Landing is also produced by Mitchell Kevitt, who is also our technical advisor. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Middlesex County Board of Commissioners. This podcast is dedicated to County Commissioner Kenneth Armwood, who encouraged us to do something no one has ever done before. Special thanks to those interviewed, Dr. Richard Veit, Dr. Maxine Laurie, and especially David Zamoda. Uncovering Raritan Landing is written by me, Douglas Almack, Mitchell Kevitt, Colin Doherty, and Emma Young. Edited and sound mixed by me. Our theme song is Fun Time by Alexander Mistrovsky. Mm-hmm.